I hope that you all are well. And as we, we get started, uh, I just want to uh, start off by saying Happy Mother's Day uh, to, 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 all of our, to all of our moms this morning. Truly a special day and truly a, a, a great day on, on this Lord's Day that in God's providence we celebrate Mother's Day on the Lord's Day. And I think that's very intentional and very good and for us to, to recognize. Um, I've said it before, and I'll, I'll say it again, that I've never known or could fully know or appreciate the beauty of motherhood for its sacrifice, for its commitment, and the strength. would have never known those things from seeing them in my own mom, but I never would have known how really difficult it can be uh, if it wasn't for what I see in my wife. And, and I know for each of you husbands out there, you recognize the, the, the same thing. Every day with every waking moment, it seems that everything that they have is given over to the service and sacrifice for someone else um, in, in ways and means that the world seems to be very demeaning and, and unworthy to do. Um, but brothers and sisters, I think we recognize that the glory of God is seen in motherhood. Um, we see the sacrifice, and we see God's glory in, in that for the giving of oneself for another. Uh, so men and children, we have been on the front row to something very glorious. And so we should be very thankful and very appreciative to to mothers, to our wives, um, but also very thankful to the Lord that we get to see, see such a glorious thing, uh, glorious acts of love and service lived out before us almost every single day. With that being said, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, as many of you already have, to Nehemiah chapter 8. To Nehemiah chapter 8. We've been in uh, Ezra and now Nehemiah since, I don't know, what was it, August? Then we started the first week we were in here. Uh, and now we've come to Nehemiah 8. And we finished, or we're finishing chapter 8 this, this morning. Chapter 8 has been one of those very significant chapters in Nehemiah. One of the most important of all the, of all the chapters of, of Nehemiah. The walls have been rebuilt. That was back in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, and now there's this beginning to take place in, in Israel to the Jews, is that they're rebuilding the people, right? So there's this intentional work of rebuilding the people. And so what we saw uh, in chapter 8, being on the first day of the seventh month, which for us the seventh month is July, but for them the seventh month is September, October-ish, uh, uh, for, for us, the first day of the seventh month, after the walls were built, all the people gathered together in the city before the water gate as one man to hear the proclamation of God's word. You see that there in the beginning of chapter 8. Ezra the scribe, the priest, he was called upon to come and to read God's word before them. And for six hours, the people stood under the reading and the proclamation of God's word. 
And then after that, the Levites came out and began to teach all the people what God's word meant. They translated it, they interpreted it, and they exposited God's word so that they would have a clear understanding of this is your God, this is who you are, and this is what he requires of you. So they had a clear understanding. And that understanding to the people became so clear that they understood their guilt. And they understood their shame. And they understood their sin before God. That they have neglected God's word. They have sinned before him. God's word that has been read to them had cut them to the heart. Had exposed them. They were undone. And yet what we see, what we saw last week in particular, is that their godly leaders led them not to weep, but to rejoice. To, to rejoice and to, to rejoice and to be joyful in the Lord. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. What God has found joy in delivering them, providing for them, that is your strength. That is what you delight in. How he has preserved them. That is your joy. That is your strength. And so what happened to them? Did they keep on weeping? No. They rejoiced. In fact, how they rejoiced is they broke out the good wine. And then they started cooking the ribeye and prime rib and they celebrated they celebrated the Lord and as verse 12 says they celebrated they rejoiced in the Lord again because they understood the word they understood the word of God so that's where we are and here's where we're going verse 13 Nehemiah chapter 8 on the second day the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to the days the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, 
and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Back in Ezra 3, 90 years earlier, the first generation to come back to the land out of Babylon, led by Zerubbabel and the priest Jeshua, when they came back to Jerusalem, their very first priority was to rebuild the altar in Jerusalem. At this moment, when they showed up, there was no walls, there was barely a city, and there was certainly no temple, just a bunch of rubble and a people who have never seen this land before, just knowing from their stories and from their grandmas and their grandfathers that this is where they used to live. Sure didn't leave it very nice for them, did they? And here it is before them, and they rebuild the temple. All there was around them was rubble and a bunch of foreign people they've never known. People who were not from that land, people from all over the world that had come back and or they have come to be resettled in this area. In fact, that was one of the things that the Babylonians did. When they conquered a the land, they'd move a bunch of people out and then they would bring people in from other places to come and to resettle those areas. And when they came back, it was also the seventh month, September, October. And they knew that this was a significant month. The necessity for them to restart the worship of God was important and vital for this people to know, again, who they are and what they are to do. They rebuilt the altar, and they began the daily burnt offerings. And in Ezra chapter 3, verse 4, it says, And they kept the feast of booths as it is written. What does that mean? That means according to the scriptures. They look to the Bible. How do we do this? We look to the Bible and they followed the Bible and they kept the feast of booths. Now the way that Nehemiah records this as we have just read it, it's read read or uh, recorded in such a way that as if Something happened between Ezra 3 and Nehemiah 8. In those 90 years, somehow, the Feast of Booths was forgotten about again. Or wasn't kept as strictly as it should have been. How does it, how does something like that happen? How could they allow once again to be who are once taken out of ex, are brought out of exile and delivered by God how could they forget to follow the law follow the rules the law of God to observe and to celebrate this feast well if you've ever read the old testament often it's easy for us to say that the Jews were just a bunch of short-minded people. And they were, from generation to generation, very short-minded and would very much forget. It's almost as if they had no clue, right? It's as if uh, why in the world they would keep kind of doing back and going back to the same 
things over and over again expecting different results. Did they ever learn? Did they ever learn just to listen to God and to follow his law? As tempting as it may be for us to look down on Israel, and yes, they were very much guilty and God judged them for that, What's very clear is the lesson that we see from the Old Testament is that we very much have the same nature. The same nature to forget and neglect God's Word. To be obedient. Since it's Mother's Day, I'll use a Mother's Day or a mom's illustration. My mom would often tell me, don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't climb on that. Well, I did that. I climbed the tree all the way to the top. The branch broke. I landed on the ground, completely knocked out until my mom's standing over me asking if I'm okay. Knocked out cold. I touched the stove, and of course it burned me. I climbed on a tombstone when I was told not to, and I slipped and fell, and I broke my nose. Face planted. That's what Ezekiel's got going on right now in his head, if you saw it. And the point of all that is not that I'm a terrible climber. It was actually quite good. It wasn't my fault that the tree branch broke. But that we do not want to follow rules. We don't want to be obedient, or at least we're very short-minded in our obedience. We want to do what is right in our own eyes, which is why a mom's job is so tough. We, we don't want to believe that these things that are told that we are to do or not to do, that these are good for us. They are meant for our good. And so we forget that, or we don't believe that, and we want to shift to something else, something sinful to find joy in, something else to find satisfaction in. Sin is our problem, and yet what flows throughout the Bible is that man is not most happy and most joyful in their sin. Man is most happy and joyful when they are close to the Lord and they are obedient to His Word. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. That's a hymn, not the Scriptures, but it is true. The point, that point goes, however, that point goes totally against the grain of culture. It goes totally against the grain of, of the natural state of man's heart. Because we want to believe the world teaches this, and they have believed, maybe you're still believing this, is that happiness and joy are found in gratifying every sense. Gratifying every emotion, giving into every emotion, feeding the flesh, demanding everyone else's approval for your choices, and then taking none of the responsibility for the consequences for, the, for anything that inevitably happens because of such choices. And yet the Bible is very clear. The lived-out Christian life and experience is that man is most satisfied 
when they live to the glory of God, which is following Christ. The scene in our text this morning starts off in day two. First day was reading the scripture, weeping and rejoicing, and now day two is played out. And the people are drawn close. They're drawn close because of this word of God. The scripture changed their hearts by the word of God. Their hearts were changed by the word of God. And that change produced obedience to the word of God. And that obedience led to joy. Joyful holiness. Before we make the first point, I need to make sure that we're all on the same page. And and that is the presupposition that obedience to the law, obedience to the law will not achieve favor or righteousness that will save you from your sin. It will not save you. If you seek to just be obedient only to achieve a righteousness that will save you, you will only be left in your sin and will be condemned. Apart from the saving work of Christ alone, by God's grace alone, there is no amount of good works or law-keeping that one can do to accomplish salvation. Search the New Testament and you will find this very truth. We are sinners. Romans 3.10, none is right. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Romans 3.12. And in our sin, we are incapable of earning salvation through any amount of obedience. There is no grand scale that God is going to look and say, Here is your obedience, and here is your disobedience. And if this outweighs the other, you're good. That is wrong. And so upon that presupposition, we have to know that there's no amount of obedience that will save you, only the work of Christ. Only through the work of Christ. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So if you are not a Christian, and you are not in Christ, then your greatest need is not to be obedient. You need Christ. You need Christ. You need to be regenerated. You need to be transformed. As John says, you must be born again. You must repent of your sin. You must believe and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And we have to get that point right. Because obedience doesn't change hearts. Only a changed heart can be obedient. So this is for Christians alone. This first point here is for Christians. This is a call for for Christians. And again, if you miss that distinction, then you'll be confused from the get-go. So what I want you to see from this passage this morning first is that the Bible is the word that the Lord uses. God uses his word 
his scriptures to change the hearts of his people. We've already seen what it did the day before, the great work to produce joy because they understood God's word, but now it's the next day. Verse 13, it's the next day. The heads of the father's households and all the people uh, of all the people and the priests and the Levites and with Ezra, they all gather once again. Now the families are back home, but the heads of the household, all the fathers of the whole people are there gathered with the priests and the Levites and Ezra to do what? Verse 13. This is amazing. To study God's word. To study the law of God. God's word not only humbled them and gave them joy the day before, but now it has changed their hearts in such a way that they want a greater understanding of God's word. They want to know God. How do we know God? We go to his word. That is how we know God. They wanted to know God. If you want to get to know somebody, if you want to say there was a, a person, maybe the days when you were single, or the, your wife that you wanted to date when you guys were single, and you wanted to get to know that person, what would you do? Not talk to them? No, you would spend time, you would talk to them, you'd ask them questions, you would want to get to know them. Spending time with them is the, is the key, and this is where they are. God has changed their hearts in such a way where they desire now God's word to know him. And here now are the heads of households who wanted to know the scriptures in such a way because now they want to be obedient as the fathers, as the leaders of their family, so that they can go back and fulfill Deuteronomy chapter 6 to teach their families and to lead their wives and their children in righteousness that they too may know God. That was the biblical thing to do. The Bible changes their hearts. Two days ago, that was very different. Just two days ago, it's so different. Now, Two days forward, God's word is having its effect in this people. And again, we have to recognize Ezra's here. Ezra's leading them and teaching them. He is a faithful man and a faithful leader that God used. You might remember that back in Ezra chapter 7, it said that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We cannot miss the fact that in God's joy, he is showing his people his word through his man. He's leading his people with the scriptures. And why? Because it is God's word that changes and shapes his people. Nehemiah 8, they're studying God's word. You see that in verse 13. But what did they find? What did they find? They, they, they found that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should live in booths, a.k.a. tents without roofs. Right? 
little wood shanties. Because this is the time, the feast of the of booths, the feast of the tabernacles is, is upon them. And this was, you can read there, it's just like a stunning discovery. Like, we should have been doing this all along. We're behind the eight ball here, guys. We got to get to work. We got to prepare. Most had never observed or seen the Feast of Booths done. The Feast of Booths is a seven-day event where each family would construct a small temporary shelter out of sticks and tarps and, again, without a roof, living like they were camping for seven days. And they set these things up. You, you can read it there. They set them outside their houses. Some put them on their on their roofs if they had a flat roof or they put them in front of the gates, wherever they could put these things. And it was to commemorate the way God had provided for his people in the wilderness 40 years, for 40 years before they entered the promised land. The festivals and the feasts that there were supposed to take place, that they had seven of them throughout the year, and three of them were in the seventh month. They were found, they were read, you can read them in Leviticus chapter 23, where God commands them to observe them. And why does God want them to celebrate these feasts and these festivals? Because in these things, they were to be powerful reminders and symbols that continually taught them the story of showing what? Showing God's character and showing God's nature and how he had provided for them so Richly, It was a way of teaching the generations. So the effect of not doing it was doing what? Not teaching. Not showing them that this is how God has provided richly for them and for their forefathers while camping underneath the stars. And here they were returning back to an experience but they were not merely celebrating the way that God had sustained their forefathers through the wilderness only, but in the feast and in the celebration and living in those booths, they were entering into their own experience of remembering how God had sustained them. You might remember that the, the tumultuous issues that they had in the rebuilding the walls, and yet God was with them every step of the way protecting them, guiding them, providing for them. And for them to remember, God didn't just provide for them way back then, but we see it in us. So studying the word of God, they needed to hold to this feast, so some preparations needed to be made. The shanties needed to be built. Verse 16 tells us that it is exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did. They went out into the woods and they collected everything that they needed. They did exactly what the word had told them to do. They went out and they got everything they needed. When I was in high school, my dad lined up some side work for us for this guy who lived in Satellite Beach. Um, he was an engineer at NASA. Cool, really cool dude. And one of the interesting things is, as a, as, as a guy, at least I've never known this, First time, I think, ever meeting a real Jewish person. This guy was straight up Orthodox, right? So he had the little curly hair things going down, and he had the cap, of course, and 
and he even dressed in the black, and he went to work like that. I mean, this was his, this was his deal. And, and we were there to, to haul a, a whole dump truck load of, of rock to his backyard, spread it around his pool. And I remember we went back there behind his pool, and he had a, one of these booths set up in his backyard next to his pool. And being the uh, ignorant young man that I was, I honestly just thought it was like a tiki hut that someone was setting up, you know, that they can serve drinks or whatever, right? And, um, of course, I didn't ask that. But we did ask eventually, you know, what, what is that for? And he, he explained it to us. That, that this is for the, the, the feasts of booths. And they built it the same way, without a roof and the sticks. And they'd go back and they would spend the seven days living out of this, uh, uh, out of this thing uh, uh, for, the, for the celebration of the feasts of, of booths. Uh, and he explained it to us. And I thought it was amazing to, to hear. And in the same way, they built their huts out of the, the sticks. And, and you could spot these things all around the city, and these people were living in it. So just like I was. Could you imagine the watching world that was all around? Because remember, the nations are there. Imagine the, the, the watching world. They, these people just got done building the wall. And now they're, they were weeping all together one day. Now they're singing and rejoicing and eating together. And, and then they start building these little stick homes outside of their real homes. They're either all collectively fumigating their houses together, or they're nuts. They're crazy. And that is until someone asks, like I did, and a Jewish man says, no, we're not crazy. We're remembering how God had delivered us, how God had provided for us and preserved us because he loved us during a time, and you might remember during their wilderness roaming, he loved us during a time when we were not so loving back to him. The reason why that is so important here in this passage is because knowing God's word, and for them they are about to experience God's faithfulness once again, that produced obedience. It produced obedience. From hearing God's word on day one to learning and being taught God's word on day two, hearts were changed to be obedient. Obedient to even look crazy in front of their neighbors. Obedient to build these shanties. Obedient to sleep outside when, honestly, there is a perfectly nice bed inside. Obedient to live outside for seven days in the desert, obedient to lead their children, that this isn't just a camping experience, but for them to learn and to experience the faithfulness of God. The Bible says to do, and they went and did. What does this mean? This means that obedience is demanded by the Scripture for those who know the joy of being changed by God. And for us, it's the joy of knowing that we have been forgiven. Let me show you first from Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart. Again, the heart is changed first. 
The heart is changed first. So that those who were once slaves to sin, right? So this goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. We're slaves to sin. We're slaves to our sin. There's none good. No, not one. We have been changed in our hearts, and from that change now we are to be and can be obedient. Obedient to what? To the standard of teaching. To the standard of teaching. To the very word that has changed us. To the very word that is conforming us even more to Christ. It is what commands us. It changes us and it commands us. To which you were committed. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. We have been set free from sin, from the slavery to sin, to now as slaves to righteousness. Obedience comes from a heart that has been changed, that has been transformed by the Word. Therefore, we are no longer slaves to sin, but we have been now become slaves to righteousness. A righteousness that is imputed to us in Christ, transformed to be obedient to his righteous commands. One more, looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. This is faith. This is what we were saying earlier, faith in Christ which changes us, changes our hearts. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, born again. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love, when, excuse me, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands, commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And so here in 1 John, we are being shown that there are three marks to a Christian. There, there are three marks that we can distinguish who's a Christian. First one is loving the church. He says that a Christian will love the church. And when I say the church, I mean he loves or she loves the people of God. She loves the bride of Christ. We love one another. That's a mark of Christianity. A mark of a church is those who love one another. Very firm mark. If we hate each other, then what in the world are we? We're like everyone else. Second, is that we love God. That you love whoever loves God and that you love God. Yep, we love you, God. I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Check. We love God. Third mark. 
John says, obey his commandments. And here is the rub, isn't it? Here is the rub. Because this is the point, this is the point that John is making. A person cannot say that they love God and that they love God's people, but they hate his commands. Because to hate God's commands is to hate God's holiness. And to hate God's holiness is to hate God himself. For God's holiness is his character. It's his nature. It's who he is. God's commands are linked with his holiness. You cannot love God and reject his character. I do not care what liberals say. It cannot be done. It cannot be done with God, just like in real life, in reality, it cannot be done. You cannot say, let's just say, I'll use me for the example again, right? I'm so good at using myself for an example, right, Bill? I cannot say, Christina, I love you, but man, I hate your personality. I hate who you are, but I love you. I think you all would seriously doubt my love for her, wouldn't you? I already see Beth. She's already angry. <laughs> I mean, it was like... <clears throat> you would seriously doubt my love for her. And why? Because love is founded in loving them as who they are. We love God because of who he is. We love God because he's holy. We love God because he is love, but because he's holy, and that he's just, and that he's omnipotent, and that he's sovereign and omniscient. We love God because he is. You divorce any of those and still say that you love God, you're not really loving God. You're loving an idol. You're loving a figment of your own imagination that's not even rooted in Scripture, even though you might have cut some out and said, this is why I love God. You don't love God. So what is John saying? He says you love God, you show that you love God, and the mark of Christianity is what? It's obedience. Now there is a lot of debate that comes up when you start talking about obedience. Because many will say obedience is being legalistic. They would instantly move into a place that if you start talking about obedience, then you are saying that, that it's a works righteousness that will save you. That what you do then will earn a righteousness that will save you. That if you obey enough, then God will approve of your salvation based upon your own goodness. But that's not true. That's not what I'm saying here. It's not what the Bible is saying. That's not what John chapter 5 is, 1 John chapter 5 is saying. It's not what the scriptures are telling us. It is not our obedience that saves us. Our obedience is not coupled with faith and then we are saved. Our faith is coupled with Jesus' obedience. And then that's what saves us. And in that salvation, we are changed so that we now can be obedient. So now in saving faith, our faith is now being worked out in our obedience. That's what John is saying. The scriptures are very clear on this issue. 
But those who gathered in Jerusalem that day to hear the scriptures taught to them, they knew immediately that this was God telling them to do something, and they gladly did it willingly and wholeheartedly, no matter how crazy it might have made them look. Brothers and sisters, we are compelled to be obedient to the scriptures because by God's grace, he has changed us. He has transformed you. He is still transforming you from one degree of glory to the next by his word. Are you struggling to be obedient in certain areas of your life? Then let me ask you, have you allowed the word of God to transform your heart and mind in that area? Has the word of God transformed you in that area. A changed heart leads to obedience, produces obedience. But lastly, obedience produces joyful holiness. It comes from our last set of verses, and it says that obedience produces joyful holiness. Verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the day of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law, and they kept the feast seven days. Every seven years, during the Feast of Booths, they would spend all seven days reading through God's Word together. And this is what they did each day. And as he says here, that as they continue to read God's Word, they rejoice. They, they rejoice. The Feast of Booths was a, was a celebration of rejoicing. It was, a, it was to, to be celebrated. We weren't, you weren't just supposed to live in your booth uh, uh, because you had to, but because you were doing it joyfully. They were commanded to be joyful, and they were certainly joyful. And Nehemiah even describes for us in a hyperbolic sense that, that during the feast, it had been the best feast that they'd experienced since the days of Joshua. So all the way back to the first times that they were having the Feast of Booths and actually living it out, uh, it was some of the best times since then. And meaning what he's saying here is that this was an amazing celebration. It was an amazing time of rejoicing that they had. And what Nehemiah wants us to see or what God's Word is showing us is the relationship between their obedience and now their experience of joy. They gladly celebrated because God's word had changed them. We already talked about that. And their hearts were directed toward the Lord. Their minds were on the Lord's goodness. They wanted to be obedient. They were obedient. And they celebrated. And it gave them great joy. They rejoiced. Well, I can't explain it in any other way than that. They rejoiced. Again, Man tends to believe that any obedience to God 
and for that matter, any authority is trying to take away their happiness. It's trying to subvert something from them. God's word and commands are in some way there to steal their joy. But that's not at all what we see here, is it? And nor is it what we see throughout the scriptures or even in life. God's created order and God's word has shown us how we are to live if we are to promote human flourishing, joy, happiness, and satisfaction and contentment. What has man's desire to do was only for them to do what is right in their own eyes. And what has that ever done for man? It has brought sin. It has brought separation, destruction, death into the world, into lives, into families, into nations, etc. Again, for the Christian, we pursue obedience to the Lord as it's revealed in the scriptures. And what we will see is that we will experience joy and happiness. Because your joy and happiness is not in the temporal, in what can be taken and what can be stolen or what can be destroyed, but what is in eternal. It's in the Lord. It's in Jesus Christ. It's a satisfaction and joy that, that cannot be taken. At the end of verse 18, this rejoicing people for seven days, reading God's word, enjoying the, the feast. They continually obey God's word because this is what God's word tells them to do. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Well, what rule? Leviticus 29. You can go back and look at it. Leviticus 29 tells them that on the eighth day, when the celebration is done, they are to have a solemn assembly. They have a solemn assembly where it prescribes for them like a Sabbath. No work, make burnt offerings, food offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings. It was to be a special time. Everything slows down. No more celebrating, but now it's time to stop and to dwell and to meditate and think upon the Lord. And these offerings were meant to be as humility to the Lord and reverence to the Lord, but also as a sign of a sacrifice for their sin before the Lord. The eighth day was a call to sacrifice for their sin, which is the exact opposite of all the other days. It was a special moment, a serious time to stop in their celebration to remember their sin. And if you look ahead, we're going to see this in chapter 9, you will see why. Because in chapter 9, this solemn assembly brings about the corporate confession of their sin. Obedience from a changed heart produces joy. And that joy leads into continual holiness. Now we have no obligation 
to observe the Feast of the Booths today or to make sacrifices. You do not have to go home and start making your booth or prepare sacrifices for next Sunday. This celebration was part of the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant and was abolished by the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. What they were celebrating was looking back to God's deliverance and provision, but it was also looking forward to their own provision and deliverance, but also to a future deliverance for their people. A deliverance from their sin, from death. Someone who would come and fulfill the law that they constantly failed at, which is why they needed the solemn assembly to repent of their sin, to make sacrifice. Someone who would come and provide for them and deliver them, not just in the wilderness, but for eternal glory. We as the church don't celebrate the Feast of Booths, but we have experienced the deliverance that they were looking forward to. In each Lord's Day, we gather and we remember His victory. We remember the cross and we remember his resurrection. It's like the Feast of Booths. We're to come joyful, celebrating. Some days we bring food. There's plenty of crockpots sitting out there. And we look forward to rejoicing together. But each Sunday is a joyful celebration of God's great provision through his Son. And then when we take the Lord's Supper each month, we also are remembering the cross and the salvation provided through his sacrifice, the unity of the body in the anticipation of his return. This is our joy. And this is how we rejoice in Christ. And our obedience to his word is, is, is that we rejoice and we remember, and that remembering and rejoicing produces joy. And then in that joy, it calls us to even more holiness. Think with me again, just thinking about how we celebrate the, the, the Lord's Supper. Crazy. We call it a celebration. That's nuts. Why would we call it a celebration? Why would we call remembering the vicious murder of the Son of God a celebration? We're crazy. It's more like a solemn assembly, not a celebration. Not for us to make a sacrifice like they did on their solemn assembly, but rather we come trusting in his sacrifice. And in those solemn moments together, we are reminded together as the body of Christ, the church, but also as individuals of what? Our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And we also see and we feel and we taste the, the measure of his sacrifice so that now, 
We who were once enemies and outsiders, we have been forgiven and we've been made new. We have been given the Holy Spirit and we've been adopted as sons of God. Isn't it weird that it's like a solemn assembly? And yet it's this mingling of joy and yet also confession of sin and remembering and also anticipation of his second coming. It's all of those things, and that's why we call it a celebration. Because it's pointing from us to him. We're reminded of God. We're reminded of our Savior. We're reminded of who is our joy. And yet also at the same time, how each of us are called to repentance of sin and to a greater holiness. And that is something we're celebrating. In a sense, at this time during our corporate gathering that we've come to, toward the end of the sermon, and we move into a response, and we're going to do questions and answers, and then we're going to pray in between. We're kind of moving into that solemn assembly time. Where now that God's word has been read, it's been prayed, it's been sung, it's been proclaimed, And as participants, we are now called to respond to God's word. Respond to the Lord himself. Are we humble to confess our sin to the Lord and to repent of our sin? To make things right in offense with another? To respond with the encouragement of the Lord together? so that one another is built up and encouraged. Are we humble enough to be grateful for the Lord's work of sanctification in your life, thanking Him for your obedience that has come from a changed heart, and yet still praying for continual walking by faith and by sight? Brothers and sisters, God's word truly changes our hearts. And it changes our hearts toward him to be obedient to him. So by the word of God and the strength of the Holy Spirit, let us be obedient to knowing that our grace-driven obedience will produce joyful holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, how it changes our hearts, how it changes our minds and our directions. Help us to be obedient in that change, obedient toward you, toward your word, that we may be pursuing holiness to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that as we do so, that we would experience and see the joy that comes from such obedience and the continual pursuit of holiness in that joy. Lord, we thank you for your call on our lives. We thank you for the word of God, and we thank you for the church. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.